like did everything right as a high school kid. I mean, and as a kid, um, I was an A plus student. And I, for the first time, didn't believe in myself for a second. And I actually started to believe that maybe I wasn't as smart as the white kids. I'm Erin Worsham, Executive Director of the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship at Duke University. And this is Case in Point, a podcast where we explore how social ventures can leap the chasm from idea to impact at scale. In this episode, we talk with Elisa Villanueva-Beard, the incredible CEO of Teach for America. Teach for America is an organization that is finding, developing, and supporting a diverse network of leaders to address inequity in the U.S. education system and to shape its future. Today's conversation comes from our live event with Elisa as part of the Case Executive Speaker Series. Elisa shares with us her own story of discovery, the incredible push to bring TFA from an idea and one that had a lot of naysayers to a global movement, and the ways that TFA is scaling and working to pursue diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. Let's jump into the conversation. I always love to start with a little bit more of the personal side okay. of things. So, so take me on your journey. Tell me a little bit more about um, your personal story and how it connects with what Teach for America does. Yep. Um, great to be here um, and, and glad to see all the some familiar faces. Um, so my story begins in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley where I grew up. Um, for If you're not familiar with big old Texas, if you go all the way south, people are like, oh, right, Houston. I'm like, no, no, keep going. <laughs> um, and you hit the Mexican border and you kick up about 20 miles. Um, I grew up in a town called McAllen. Um, and my mom came to the United States from Mexico at the age of 17 with a formal eighth grade education. God bless you. Um, and my dad is first generation college graduate. His family is also from Mexico. And I told the story earlier, but my mom, you know, when she came to the U.S., she quickly figured out that the pathway to opportunities was ensuring her kids would have a great education. Um, and so she made a decision pretty early on and said, if I'm going to get married, I'm going to marry a man with a college degree. Um, because a man with a college degree is going to be a father to my kids and it's going to change my kids' lives and opportunities. So that's literally how she picked my father. Um, and she always... I'm sure he has other redeeming characteristics. <laughs> well, you know, they've been married for 48 years and my dad's like the best man in the world. Um, and it, so it's, it's all worked out really beautifully. Um, but my mom always advised us as we're three girls and one boy and she always said, do not fall for the looks. They will go away. And so really figure out what's most important here. My dad's a good looking man too as it turns out. But uh, anyway, all to say education was just, it was really important in my family and the ethos of what that meant. And so I was that kid that I always knew I would go to college because it was expected of me in my home. Um, and I end up at a small liberal arts college in Greencastle, Indiana called DePaul University. Um, so if you know the Rio Grande Valley, I mean, for those of you that don't, it's about 85% Mexican-American. And then DePaul, uh, and Greencastle, Indiana is not that. Um, and I had never really traveled north of Houston. I'd never been on a plane, you know, and, and then I show up at DePauw. And I, I really thought the hardest part of this is going to be that I'm like in a different world, in a different country, it felt like. And DePauw at the time was 3% Latino, 5% black, and then middle, upper middle class white America, an America I had never met. Um, but that did not turn out to be the hardest part, actually. Um, I, I learned a, a good thing about myself, which is I'm an adaptable person, and I actually sort of 
got a lot of energy from my environment and um, was curious. And that was actually the best part of my education is getting to know such different people than myself. Um, it was it was hard, and there's lots of things we could talk about on that. But um, the hardest part was actually coming to realize that I was underprepared for the rigors of college. Now, the reason that shouldn't be like, oh, you know, obvious or whatever, it should be shocking is because I like did everything right as a high school kid. I mean, and as a kid, um, I was an A plus student. I, you know, was told to take certain courses and I did. And so I was ready and I literally felt like someone lied to me because I was like, how is it possible that I'm that this is my situation? Um, I felt really ready for the task at hand. And I just hadn't been expected to do the things that my peers were just sort of like, doing. I'm like, what is happening right now? And I did really terribly my first semester. And that journey was, was quite, it's, it remains the most traumatizing part actually of my, of my life because I, for the first time, didn't believe in myself for a second. And I actually started to believe that maybe I wasn't as smart as the white kids I was around. And when you're like, you know, an other feel like that on your campus, and then you actually start to believe this about yourself, it is the most detrimental thing that someone can you know, start to internalize. Um, but the thing that got me through it was my family and particularly my mom who, you know, my mom's like incredible and she's very tough, very, very tough. And you know, when I would call and say, I don't think I'm gonna make it, like I'm not sure if this is gonna work out, mom. Um, you know, she, she would listen for a minute, but then she'd say, I just want to make it very clear to you, you are not welcome home until you complete the task that you That's have love chosen. That to is do. true love. At the moment, I was like, wow, what mom says that? And I would talk to my friends, I'm like, would your mom ever say this to you? Um, and I, 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 in retrospect, I realized it was one of the most important things because quitting got put off the table and that would have been the easy route. Um, but I knew the only way to get to the other side was to go through it. And I did terribly my first semester, and then I did better my second semester, and then I did really well after that. Um, and I, it turns out I've done pretty well overall, um, and I caught up and exceeded um, others. And, and, but that experience was pretty life-changing for me because I started to just you know, ask myself the big questions, like how is it possible that an A-plus kid, student like me, who literally did everything right, ends up in this kind of situation? And then what's happening to all the other kids? And who did I graduate from? And what, what's the story there? But that is what drew me to TFA. And when I got accepted to TFA, I said yes before I told my mom because I knew she would not be excited about it. And, um, you know, she was fine after two years into this. But um, after two years. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what brought me into it. And I've sort of learned incredible lessons once I got into the classroom. And I mean, the biggest thing is you think you know a lot. I, you know, you can imagine the environment I grew up in now that I've told you a bit about it, but you really just know so little even as you come into this and what our kids are up against. And, you know, I often say teaching, it's like you experience the microcosm of all the inequities our kids are up against. At TFA, we believe that this is a systemic problem. It's not that, you know, you have all these bad teachers and if only the teachers would get better. You have, you have bad teachers, you have great teachers, but that's not the core issue. The core issue is you have a system that isn't designed to meet all the needs of kids. And so kids are coming to schools hungry without, you know, proper housing. They show up to school and our schools are not designed to meet all of those needs and then deliver on the academics that they're charged to do. And so you're having to do all of this. And 
it, it was really profound to start to understand the complexity of it all, yet the power of a transformational education and what that could mean. Um, so I was dealing with kids who, you know, had, I talk about Jasmine who had just this massive, you know, dental problems. Like she had headaches and I didn't realize like, oh, it's because she has all these cavities. And then you realize, oh, she doesn't have access to dental care. She doesn't brush her teeth. And then you ask the class, do y'all brush your teeth morning, night? And you know, half do, half don't. And those that do share toothbrushes. And so you start to just uncover, gosh, all the things. And then you realize like, not only that, but then the adults not all around, the kids don't always believe that they can be, that you know, they're teaching the next doctors and lawyers and teachers or whatever of the country. And our kids just have to sort of deal with all of that. And so all of that solidified my commitment to stick with it. And I obviously believe leadership matters so much to, to, as part of the solution for change. Just a quick break here to tell you more about CASE and about Case in Point. Case in Point is produced by the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Here at CASE, we work with students and social ventures and impact investors to better understand what it takes to scale impact. And then we create the tools and the trainings to do just that. Do you want to learn more? Check out our work at caseatduke.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter by searching for Case at Duke. Before the break, Elisa shared how her own student experience compelled her to take a leadership role in education reform. And coming up, Elisa shares more about the Teach for America journey, how it grew from an idea rife with skeptics to a successful proof of concept, and then through the pivots, successes, and the many challenges on the path to scale. We'll also hear about how Teach for America is currently tackling issues of diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. Here's Elisa on the Teach for America journey. I've literally grown up at Teach for America, and I've been on staff, it'll be 17 years this summer, in the various roles. So, I mean, I've, as a core member, I was an IDA, and so I've really seen, been, you know, seen the organization grow over time. And we talk about the work in like these three chapters um, that help sort of sh understand the evolution of TFA. You know, when Wendy Kopp wrote her thesis on this idea, she was told she was told this is a preposterous idea. It would never work. You're never going to get top kids from the country to forego lucrative offers to go teach um, in rural and urban America. It's just never going to happen. And as any great so social entrepreneur, she said, thank you for your input and went for it. <laughs> um, and a year later was standing in front of 500 core members who had said, you know, yes to this. And so that her first decade was literally just about proof of concept. Would this thing actually take off? Would it be relevant? Um, and, you know, we were, we were working to answer a few criticisms that folks that would never, hey, could you actually get these folks? If you got them, they would be terrible. I mean, you're putting them in high needs classrooms. They're just going to be awful. Um, and no principal's really going to hire these folks. Why would they do that? And if all of that happens to work out, this will end up being like a two-year blip in the trajectory of someone, and then they'll go back to real life, and it will prove to not have mattered. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're never going to raise dollars for this because no one's going to. This is a crazy idea. So just a few problems <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> but by the end of that decade, we had actually proven and answered those questions and said, no, we, you know, there's something really to this, and people aren't just leaving, and you know, they're really sticking with it, and there's something to it. Um, and so that led us to what we call Chapter Two, which is scaling our effort and ensuring effective 
greatness and in unleashing our alumni, um, our alumni work while also, you know, doubling down on our, our diversity efforts. And so it was during this time. And the reason we decided to do this is the demand for TFA was just growing. And so we weren't able to meet all of our partners' needs. And then others were calling and saying, hey, we want Teach for America in our community. And we had come to understand how big and complex this problem is that like scale and numbers actually was going to matter and so that it was important for us to really double down on this and so it was a very mission driven decision to to do this and so we set out to do it and in 2000 we had 5000 core members and alumni and in 2015 we were at 50000 core members and alumni um, at 2000 we had less than 200 staff and by 2015 we had over 2 did I say 2,000? We had two, under 200 staff in 2000, um, and by 2015, we had over 2,000 staff mm -hmm. um, during this time. And we, you know, we were able to actually prove our effectiveness. We're a very well-studied organization um, because I think there's lots of cynicism to mm -hmm. like, will this thing actually work? But every third party study that we have shows that if you're gonna hire a first year teacher, hiring a TFA teacher is, is a good bet. Um, you know, we're not as good as we need to be and we need to do ever better, but we know we're having a positive impact. And this is when we started to see our real alumni work come to life. Mm -hmm. um, like what were our alumni actually gonna be up to? And we had our first person run for office in 2001. Um, and she actually won. And it was this whole grassroots effort. It was an, a moment of inspiration. It was after our 10th year summit where we like try to re-energize everyone. And there was this board seat that come available and Julie Makuta said, I think I'm gonna run. And people said, well, you should run. And you know, and, and we had never had this happen. It was grassroots effort and she won. And we thought, oh, our folks can like get elected to office at 30 or 31. And today we have 200 elected officials across the country. We have our first two alums running for governor um, and a generation running for US Congress now. In 2005, our first alum, you know, became national teacher of the year. And we thought, oh, our folks can like choose to teach and like make this a career, which is incredible because that's not most of our folks intention when they enter. And today we have nearly 14,000 alums who have chosen to you know lead from the classroom we have 1200 principals 300 system leaders and a note on the system leaders we now have six commissioners of education um, and just a few months ago massachusetts was looking for their commissioner of education and the three finalists were tfa alums and so that system just when you look at it i mean there's just tfa alums everywhere the commissioner the associate commissioner of teaching and learning um, you look at the superintendent of Boston Public Schools, the alumni leading the top performing charter management organization, 60 principals, 140 deans and assistant principals, and then 600 teachers in that system. And you can sort of start to, you know, we could tell the story about various communities and just the energy and leadership that brings to it is, is pretty remarkable. And then social entrepreneurs, which, you know, that's sort of in our DNA. Um, but we have, you know, 200 of those. And if you look at the Forbes 30 under 30, um, Every year there's a good cohort of, of TFA alums that are in there. Last year it was 10, this year it was seven. And there's this study that was done, Ednex study, that showed, you know, when you look at all of the educational entrepreneurial organizations, the, you know, they disproportionately come from the TFA network. And so we get to the end of this era and we have this amazing scale. We have this incredible diversity. We had grown our diversity. I mean, this year, 49% um, of our incoming core are, you know, core members of color. 
30% or a third of our um, incoming core are first-generation college graduates. We had 49,000 applications last year, and we have an acceptance rate of about 14 or 15% every year. Um, and we are the largest, you know, most diverse group of educators going into low-income communities and STEM teachers as well. And just a note on the diversity thing, like why it matters. I mean, across the country, the teaching force is 18% people of color. Um, and our student population is 50% people of color. And that mismatch really matters. And there's more research that continues to be revealed that shows that just really matters that our kids are exposed to um, teachers that look like them. Um, and so we get, so I mean, that is our scaling effort. And now what we're doing is we've taken this, you know, our asset, which is this network of 56,000 and said, we're gonna leverage the scale and diversity and drive innovation learning and collective leadership because we know that innovation is so important. Our system was designed and built for a different era and we need to make sure that we're really thinking about what are we preparing our kids to do in our society? Jobs that we don't even know what they are gonna be in the next 10 to 15 years and really need to rethink this and need the next generation of leaders to really come in you know, fully on the, on the case. Um, and then a focus on collective leadership. We, had a, we did really well in focusing on the individual, rugged individualism of your TFA alum might sound familiar. We're, you know, we have almost a hero status, you know, that, that we prioritized. And, I believe individual leadership is so critical. You know, it takes someone that just decides to do something different or have a different vision and the courage to do something, but you really can't get it done and really have true systemic change unless you're doing it collectively with everyone and really community, grounded in the community and place and history. And so um, that's what we're working on as, as we go forward. It's been an incredible journey. And, and of course, I think everybody can note the data focus of Teach for America. It's always incredible for me to listen to you talk about the impact Teach for America has had and be able to rattle off all the numbers mm -hmm. uh, and really have the evidence base behind the, the impact and the theory of change that you're pursuing. So really impressive there. I'd, I'd love to pick up on the diversity point that you were talking about. Okay. Um, clearly that's a, a core value and attribute and, and focus for the organization now. I'm curious how that's evolved over the years. Was that, th that always so core to your model or has that, has that changed over time and if so, how? So, um, you know, when Wendy founded TFA, she always knew diversity mattered, right? I mean, we are teaching in low-income communities. We are teaching predominantly kids of color. Um, and so we know that you have to have, a, you know, a, a core, you know, the representation of those who themselves have experienced the inequity. And so it's, it's always been part of the conversation. Um, but we've evolved a lot and learned, like, what does that actually mean? And what does it mean to have a real commitment to this? Um, in 2009, we wrote our first diversity statement um, and said, here's what we actually believe about this. And that was actually a really important moment for us. I would say the first moment was in 2007 when we actually started, talked about racism as like a core named it. root cause. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first time we said racism, mm -hmm. Um, we would talk a lot about low expectations, which is true. Um, but just what is the role of race in this? And like for real, getting real about it. Um, and, and then in 2009, we wrote our diversity statement that said, you know, we just really believe that we need to be committed to ensuring that those of us who have experienced the inequity are really shaping the effort and that we're going to continue to grow this. And we also know that, I mean, we need a broad and diverse coalition. I often say we need to be able to reach every kitchen table in America and to have 
real change, you really do need people from various backgrounds on the solution and on the case, because that's what will change things. Um, and so, you know, we that that was our first commitment. And I would say we, we focused a lot on representation and, you know, we had dashboards, what are people's experiences. So it led to like lots of setting goals and really intentionally looking at the inequities that various experiences people are having. When we look at our data, is it saying some people are more successful or less successful, promotions within the organization, all these things that it drove really important behavior for us. Um, and because we are so data-driven, if you have a like a goal, then it, it prompts all this behavior and then you're actually managing toward it. Um, but we realized, you know, and like that's actually turns out to be the easy part of this, which sounds so, you know, maybe just <laughs> doesn't resonate with people. It takes real work and real intention and it's super hard to pull off. But once you have diversity, the inclusiveness part of this, people are always like, let's have an inclusive community. Well, if you don't have diversity, you don't have to worry about that. Like there's no pressure. But then when you actually have diversity, then your inclusiveness stuff, like that's the, now we're really talking. And that is like just really hard to get right. Like, Give, give me some examples of what that, what that means. So, um, well, um, and uh, hopefully this resonates with some alums, but at various generations of our organization, you know, we operated a certain way. So we, I was just talking to, to some folks earlier where, you know, in this growth phase and how we grew, and you and I were having this conversation before this, where it was, you know, we managed the heck out of the system. And we were, well, part of growing, the stakes were so high, because we were like, we're gonna grow, and the data better say we're good. Um, and so the best way to do that is we got just, um, we were just airtight on what we were doing. So from a brand perspective, I mean, literally, it, it was almost like you got templates, this is how you talk, this is what you say, these words are allowed, these words are not. You use this blue color, not that blue color. Um, I mean, it's not an example. That sounds very familiar here at Duke, <laughs> very specific shades of blue. Well, because you're really working to control your brand and you want, and you know, our core values have really been present in our, I mean, you are incul you were inculcated deeply in a community and a culture, um, which has its very positive, you know, things about it, but also creates inclusiveness problems because what was emerging were clear archetypes of the leadership that, you know, you would, that was comfortable for the organization. Um, very, you know, type A, like very planned. And we, I mean, that's, those aren't bad attributes, but when you're like, this is the only way to succeed and you're told do this step, then that step, then that step. And others are like, well, that might resonate with you, but I would do it differently. I actually, in my mind, the way to get that to that outcome, I, I would take a different route, but we were so like, no, this is the way, but like so obsessed with the process when at the, and then we started to realize that doesn't matter, like get to the outcome and people are gonna have different, ways given your own experience as a way of seeing the world to get to that outcome and that that's okay. Um, but it, you know, it creates and then you're, you see certain leaders and you're like, well, you have to operate a certain way or say things a certain way or talk a certain way in order to succeed at TFA. And those things are not good because clearly some people see themselves in that like that and others are like, I have no idea how to ever achieve that. Um, and so it just, it caused a lot of reflection for us where we were like, if we're truly gonna make sure everyone can be themselves here and you know, and have a good experience. Um, we need to manage that. And we were seeing attrition rates high at higher levels for certain staff and certain demographics. And 
you know, and, and that's not okay. Um, good thing we have the data. Most organizations don't even have the data, so they're not even having this conversation. Um, but you can't do it without diversity, and then you have this dilemma. And we're still so far from where we need to be. And then, you know, focus on just equity and what does that mean? And that's a new conversation. It's very aspirational and it's very big and, and scary for many um, and for us like you know we're, we're just so far from it so it was it was scary for us to even decide we're going to put that on paper or something we're working toward but like we have to and mm -hmm. we have to push ourselves to just keep looking in the mirror and figure out how to do that and what's our role in, in all of this well, what are your goals on on that front what do you see as the next steps or, or the future vision on the the DEI front? So we just wrote down, so that we, I talked about the diversity statement. We just rewrote that to now be a diversity, equity, and inclusiveness statement. Um, and it's actually pretty great. And it has these questions that make it very practical where you can ref have real reflection um, about, you know, am I doing this well or not? Um, but we're trying to figure out what the focus should be on the equity mm -hmm. agenda because it's so big. Mm -hmm. And people, when people hear that, I am sure if I asked 10 of you, what does that mean to you? there would be 10 different answers, which is the scary part. Like, how do you align on what is the thing we're trying to do? So we are currently working on the plan and what are the goals and how do we focus? We actually get something done and aren't just like scattered and trying to, you know, do all sorts of things. So I will have a better answer for you in the next six months. Well, sooner than that in the next three months. Okay, great. Well, yeah. a teaser, we'll, we'll yeah. need to hear that. Um, a lot of what you're saying makes me think about the, the leadership challenge of running uh, diverse, in many aspects and geographically expansive network uh, yeah. of, of regions and, and a large organization. I think many of the people in our audience, especially our students, aim to be leaders of, of those types of large scale, great impact organizations. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned along the way of how to manage the complexity of a large organization and maintain the culture and the brand and the things that you've been talking about? Mm, yeah, well, so, um, uh, you, you all heard the story about scaling, and uh, those of you that are familiar with Teach for America know, I mean, if we talk, just look, step back and look at organizational cycles of life, mm -hmm. you know that there are startups and a lot of people aspire to start stuff up and few succeed. And then once people are, you know, have started up, they aspire to scale their efforts and really have a broad reach and, and fewer succeed at doing that. It's just so exceedingly hard. So TFA was able to achieve that, but with anything that has that kind of trajectory, you will hit a bump in the road. And it's like a foregone conclusion. It's just a matter of, will you catch it before it like really smacks you in the face or will it smack you in the face? And that's how you come to realize, oh, we've hit a bump in the road. Um, <laughs> we Oops. hit a bump in the road and it, it actually slapped, it, it, it hit us in the face. Um, and it was about 2014 um, where that happened. And you know, and the, re the biggest indicator was our recruitment started to drop, mm -hmm. our recruitment efforts. And so our, our life is our ability to recruit these incredible people to do this work. And so if we're not able to do that at the scale and the level that we are, then we sort of, you know, our, our whole thing goes away. Um, and then the experience of our core members and our alumni are also the most important thing because their experience either says this is a good thing to do and we believe it's part of the solution or it's not. Um, and what we came to realize in 2014 is that those health indicators were actually starting to drop, starting like in 2011. Um, and so the experience of our core and alumni were dropping. We saw it. I mean, we had we had the data, and I I was our chief operating officer, and I remember we remember I remember having meetings and saying we just got the data back, and it dropped another five points. That is not good. Oh my gosh, but we have a goal of 8,000 incoming core members by 2015, so you're sort of like, 
you know, guys, go fix that. And we're going to have to, we have to go raise more money and find more placements. And, you know, we're, we have a goal. Um, and the organization at that point, I mean, you heard me say like over 2,000 staff had become very big and very complex. And so um, I read something once that, you know, as, as we we're trying to ga grapple with this, it says, you know, growth creates complexity and complexity is like, you know, the showstopper mm. for growth. Mm -hmm. um, and we were very complex at the time and how we were operating your focus. Um, I often say like, you know, if you look at it, we, we were very focused internally and in the mid management, lots of layers. Um, and we weren't attuned enough, like we weren't listening hard enough or like really making sure that we were evolving with what we were hearing and, and, and paying attention to the things that were gonna, you know, really matter. And so what I would say is like really making sure that the, there, there's a structure that is agile enough that like where there's enough access to the people on the front lines because that is the life of whether you're relevant or not and it's gonna it's working or not working um and so that 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 would be the biggest thing that that you know making sure that that access is there and then evolving your strategy and what you're up to as a result of that That's interesting you know thinking about sort of the checks and balances along the way of of setting the ambitious goals yes. and driving towards those with your data but making sure that you're kind of taking a step back to reflect on as we're driving there is something else happening uh, some unintended consequence yeah. that we need to pay attention to and are we still being connected with the folks on the front line and the world is changing so Absolutely. fast and mm -hmm. so as we even think about we're we're on a plan now you know that's going to end in a year but we're like these five-year big plans are just not relevant anymore it's like what is your destination like we're thinking a lot about how to mm -hmm. set that because you have to have a destination i believe and you have to have shared metrics or things that you're tr that were indicators of progress um, but how to make sure you're oriented to a, to really listening also not letting it drive you mm -hmm. but attune and then staying ahead of what's coming rather than you know getting flat-footed and we were flat-footed with our recruitment strategy and just the way this generation was making decisions and we, we just hadn't adjusted our own our own way of doing things which mm -hmm. we now have and by the way, all metrics are headed in the right direction <laughs> and we are recovering and feeling really good about the momentum that we have built. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I could sit here and ask, ask questions all day long, but I want to be cognizant of the time. So I'm going to do a couple of what I like to call lightning round questions. Okay. So short couple of word answers is what okay. I'm looking for. And while I'm doing this, everybody get your questions ready uh, because we'll be excited to, to go to an audience Q&A. All right, you ready? Yeah. Elisa. <clears throat> what drives you? Uh, I would say what drives me in my work is the sense of what's possible. We have too much evidence of what we can do. Um, and we, and every day I wake up saying we got to figure out how to scale it. We got to figure out how to make sure people actually believe that things can be different. Mm. How do you define success? I would probably talk about that in two levels. At the highest level, I would say, you know, ensuring that our children have real agency to have choices in life and be able to meet their full potential to have access to economic and social mobility, um, and 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 you know, contribute to our country as as they see you know is is best um, done for them. And then I would say as a TFA, like it's just being very clear on, you know, the big North Star that we're trying to do and then having clear data and outcomes that help drive our behavior and, and learn, just learn and iterate as, as quickly as we can. Other than people that you're related to, 
who or what inspires you most? Mm. <laughs> Coaches. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, John Wooden is one mm -hmm. of my heroes, Amazing. I would say. Yeah. I think I, I oriented towards coaching. I see myself as a coach. Mm -hmm. So Wizard of Westward, I mean, I love Coach K. I love Dean Smith. And so I, Phil Jackson, they're all different. And I, I, I study coaches. Yeah. I think it's, a, it's just an amazing um, point there about being the leader of an organization that you truly are a coach in the best sense of the word. You're a coach yeah. helping your organization achieve its mission and, and the people that work with you to really fulfill their, their potential. So I, I love that answer. All right, two more. What is your catchphrase? Mm -hmm. I should maybe ask the staff that's here with you. Like, you know, <clears throat> what do they hear you say all the time? <laughs> don't tell me. Um, don't tell me how hard it is. Um, tell me what it's going to take to get it done. It's a good one. And then last one, tell us one thing that gives you hope. Our students, Love that. young people. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Elisa as much as I did. I just loved getting to hear about the evolution of Teach for America's journey. Starting out with a proof of concept that so many people were saying wouldn't work. And then going into this phase of, of rapid growth over the course of 15 years, Elisa talked about Teach for America moving from 5,000 core members to over 50,000, from just 200 staff to over 2,000. It's incredible the growth that they've experienced over time. And it was great to be able to talk with Elisa about the challenges of managing such a quickly growing and complex organization. She shared thoughts about making sure that as a leader she sets a vision so that her team knows the destination that they're driving towards. That they use data to inform their work and make sure that they're pivoting in the right ways on the journey to scale. And then also that she's keeping close to the front lines, making sure that she and her team know what's working and what's not in the schools and making changes accordingly. And then Elisa talked about that last phase of Teach for America's evolution, where they currently are, driving innovation and collective leadership to make sure they're preparing kids for a changing world. Here at CASE, we think a lot about innovation and what comes next in terms of education. And a big part of that is the work Elisa talked about with diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. Our work here at CASE is focusing a lot on DEI issues, and so it was great to hear Elisa's thoughts on that topic. She shared that diversity is important and it was the first step that TFA took, but now they're thinking about inclusiveness and that has been so much harder. Her words were inspiring and her advice was fantastic. So I'm glad that we had her as part of our podcast. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and keep an eye out for more great conversations with impact leaders. We'll have a deep dive, intimate conversation with Elisa about some of the tactics of scaling Teach for America. And then a conversation with Lorraine Orr, the COO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And that's just the start. Many more great conversations are coming your way. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.